Hello, and welcome to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm Jeff Sankoff, an emergency physician, multiple Ironman triathlete, and your host, the TriDoc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I want to begin this episode with some feedback that I received after my discussion of the female athlete triad in episode 6. A listener wrote to ask that I point out that a form of the triad exists in men as well, and this is partly true. As you will remember, the female athlete triad consists of an interplay between some degree of disordered eating, abnormal menstruation, and decreased bone mineral density. Now, men obviously do not have menstrual cycles, and so the triad by definition cannot apply to them. However, the disordered eating component of the triad has been recognized to be a very real problem among some male elite athletes and has led to a renaming of this element of the triad to relative energy deficiency, or RED. In men, the existence of this has been referred to as relative energy deficiency syndrome, or REDS. Now, the scope of the problem that REDS presents amongst male athletes is not well understood. And because of the lack of interplay with important hormonal processes, the impact on bone mineral density does not appear to be nearly as significant nor as long-lasting as it is in women. However, while the number of men with REDS may be relatively low when compared to women with the triad, for those men who are affected, it is no less of a problem impacting performance and quality of life. On a future episode, I'll have a more in-depth conversation with a colleague and sports medicine physician about REDS and what the current level of understanding is in the athletic and medical fields. Thanks so much for the feedback. If you have a question or comment about anything you hear on the podcast, please send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. And of course, don't forget to leave a rating or a review wherever you get the show. On this episode of the podcast, Denver orthopedic surgeon Dr. Brian White is here to discuss hip labral tears. Increasingly, this is a recognized injury among cyclists and triathletes alike and can lead to significant long-term effects. I myself was diagnosed with this in 2011 and initially thought that I was going to need a hip replacement. Fortunately, I met Dr. White and he was able to reconstruct my labrum and set me on a very different path. He's here today to discuss who is at risk for developing this problem, who should consider surgery when they get it, and what life looks like for those who have the procedure. Jeanette Iwanaki is also back with the last in our Reels for Wheels series for 2018-19. Now, while I hesitate to get too premature and say that the weather has finally warmed up and that most of you should be getting outside more routinely for your riding since there's been such a epic return of winter in the last few days, certainly here in the Midwest, it is true that spring is pretty much right around the corner, and I can see a time very shortly when the trainer shall be pretty much left for dust in the basement, and we can all get back outside and start replenishing our vitamin D stores. That being said, Jeanette and I will sit down one last time and give you a, a special edition of Reels for Wheels when we discuss movies that are appropriate, not just for your really intense trainer sessions, but rather for your recovery sessions. But before all that, I begin, as always, with an answer to a listener question. Exercise and illness make terrible bedfellows. No one likes being sick, least of all because it gets in the way of training and racing. So what is known about immune system function as it relates to exercise? That's coming up. As triathletes, we pride ourselves on being finely tuned. We agonize over our training schedules, manage our nutrition down to the micronutrient level, and obsess over all manner of the data that we are able to obtain. And yet, like every other human on the planet, we remain susceptible to illnesses that can derail all of our best laid plans. 
For those of you who've been in the sport for a while, you may have become attuned to a relationship between hard training blocks or races and an increased likelihood of contracting a viral respiratory illness. But is this relationship real or is it coincidence? Well, that's the subject of this episode's listener question that comes to us from Jane. She wants to know whether or not it really is true that high-level exertion, such as a long-distance triathlon, really makes you more likely to get sick. And if so, is there anything that can be done to prevent it? As always, when it comes to seemingly straightforward questions, the answer is not so simple. So allow me to get into the weeds just a little bit on the basics of the immune system before coming back to answer Jane's question. The human body is under attack on a pretty much continual basis from all manner of microorganisms that we encounter in our day-to-day living. Bacteria, viruses, and to a lesser extent, fungi, would love nothing more than to gain entry to your inner you so they could take up residence, feast on the nutrients within, and make more of themselves to infect others. Fortunately, so long as the skin is intact, the points of entry for these attacks are pretty limited. The easiest means for invaders to get in are via the respiratory system by way of the nose or mouth, the gastrointestinal system by way of the mouth or anus, or the genital urinary system by way of the urethra or the mucosa of the vagina. Even in these areas, though, we have numerous lines of defense to prevent a successful invasion. The most important of those are the resident cells of our immune system. The immune system is the highly trained defense force in all of our bodies with the responsibility of recognizing self from non-self. Anything that gains entrance into your body is evaluated by the immune system, and if not recognized as self, a tremendous array of responses are brought to bear in order to destroy and remove the invader. The cells of the immune system are often broadly described as white blood cells, but this belies the complexity of what is actually an extremely diverse and complicated system made up of many cell types with many functions. Described simplistically, immune system function can be thought of as comprising an initial generic defense system, a secondary specific recall system, and a third level non-self-recognition system. Say, for example, a respiratory virus lands on the mucosal lining of the nose. There are thousands of such viruses, any of which can cause the signs and symptoms that we think of as the common cold. Within the linings of our noses, we have immune cells that secrete a special molecule called an immunoglobulin, in this case, immunoglobulin A, or IgA. These immunoglobulins are pretty generic. They will attach themselves to anything and everything that fits into their catcher's mitt, if you will. At any rate, if this virus is a fit, it will be removed and you won't get sick. If, however, the virus is not caught, it will penetrate the mucosa, where it will encounter the next line of defense. Our immune system has cells that keep an ever-growing database of every germ that it has ever encountered. In so doing, when the same infectious agent is seen again, the germ is recognized and the response is rapid and overwhelming so that infection does not occur. If, however, the infecting agent, in this case our respiratory virus, has never been encountered before, then it successfully causes infection and the third level of defense is initiated where the infecting organism has to be recognized as being distinct from self, logged as an invader, and then eradicated by the killer cells of the immune system. Now, this process can take a few days and is why a cold lasts as long as it does. Now, back to Jane's question. An association between the onset of respiratory tract infections and high-level exertion has been noted in elite athletes for several decades, but it took a while to tease out exactly why this might be happening. But eventually, researchers focused on the levels of IgA being secreted by athletes before and after significant periods of exertion. 
The reason they did this was because of the known defense conferred by these immunoglobulins against respiratory viruses, and previous studies had shown that lower levels of IgA in non-athletes was associated with a higher likelihood of catching a cold. Many investigators have now looked at how IgA levels change with exercise, and I can sum up the findings as follows. First, moderate exercise appears to improve immune function when immune function is measured as the levels of secretory IgA. Second, intense exercise, especially in elite athletes, causes a significant drop in IgA levels. Third, IgA levels do recover, but depending on the study, the period of recovery has been seen to vary anywhere from 1 to 24 hours. Next, the higher the intensity and the longer the exertion, the more profound the drop in immune function. And finally, a couple of studies have shown an increase in the likelihood of viral respiratory tract infections after high-intensity block in swimmers and cyclists. Now, other studies have looked at different markers of immune function, that is to say, other markers aside from IgA levels, and they have all shown similar results. Basically, no matter which marker of immune function you choose, they are all suppressed for varying amounts of time up to around 24 hours, giving what is often referred to as an open window for infection. Now, there's a couple of important caveats about all of this. First of all, lowered levels of IgA are not necessarily causal of illness. They're only associated. Other factors are likely just as important, such as being exposed to an infectious agent or other issues related to host susceptibility to infection in the first place. Second, because exercise is associated with overall improvement in immune function, it isn't clear if the relative decrease in immune function is significant enough to result in a higher susceptibility to illness when it does actually happen. Still, the research has been consistent, and even if the implications are not completely understood, we can say that immune function is most definitively negatively impacted by intense and long-duration exercise, and that there seems to be a higher likelihood of catching a cold in this open window of time before the system recovers. So as a triathlete, what can we do to mitigate this? After all, we aren't going to stop racing or training hard, but we don't want to get sick each time that we do. One of the common misconceptions, and indeed amongst the most common claims on the internet, is that there are dietary means to boost immune function. If only this was actually true. Despite all of the money spent on marketing any number of antioxidant fruit or berry-containing juice or food, and all of the herbal or vitamin supplements that Americans will spend millions of dollars on this year, not one of them has ever been shown to have any impact whatsoever on immune function, nor the ability to decrease the likelihood or shorten the duration of illness. While it is true that people who are malnourished have lower immune function, so long as you eat a healthy, balanced diet, you're going to provide your immune system with all that it needs to do the job that it has to do. So save your money on all that other stuff. Buy a new power meter instead. Trust me, you'll be spending your money much more wisely and getting a significantly bigger bang for the buck. Now, there are some other lifestyle changes that are known to be associated with improved immune function, but as a triathlete listening to this podcast, you likely do all of these already. Still, for the record, don't smoke, drink alcohol in moderation, maintain a healthy weight, avoid undue stress, and get adequate sleep. Aside from that, the most important thing that you can do by far is to avoid exposing yourself to infection in those periods when you are most susceptible. For example, the worst place to be when your immune system is depressed is an airport or on an airplane. But let's face it, after a race, we may have no choice. If you can delay your departure by a couple of days after your race, then you will be in a position where your immune system has recovered. But if you cannot, here are some tips to consider. 
carry a bottle of alcohol containing hand sanitizer. Most respiratory illnesses are actually spread by hand-to-hand contact and not so much by air. So washing your hands incessantly and being aware not to touch your face can be quite helpful. Consider wearing a mask. You can buy respiratory masks at a pharmacy. They're not going to keep all viruses out, but they will do a fair job, and most importantly, they'll keep you from touching your face and introducing viruses accidentally. Remember, however, don't wear the mask in line for security. Just put it on at the gate. Finally, try to sit with family and friends who aren't sick. Keeping your distance from anyone who is sniffling or coughing is truly the best way to keep from coming down with something yourself. All the references for my research on this topic will be, as always, included in the show notes. Listen at the end of the podcast to where you can find them. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at iCloud.com. In 2011, I began to experience discomfort in my groin, principally when mounting and dismounting my bike. I initially was concerned that I had a sports hernia and sought the advice of a friend, Dr. Ted Parks, an orthopedic surgeon here in Denver. Ted immediately recognized that what ailed me was actually my hip and sent me to see his colleague, Dr. Brian White, who quickly diagnosed my problem as a torn labrum secondary to femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. FAI and labral tears are common in triathletes and can have devastating effects if not taken care of. With Dr. White's help, I was able to eventually resume my triathlon career and did so with a renewed sense of vigor. Dr. White graduated from Georgetown University Medical School in 2002 and pursued a residency in orthopedic surgery afterwards before undertaking a fellowship in hip arthroscopic surgery with Dr. Mark Philippon at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. Dr. White now specializes in hip surgery, performing upwards of 400 surgeries a year, many to reconstruct hip labral tears. Dr. White joined me on the phone from the operating room at Porter Hospital here in Denver, where he was preparing for a surgery. Femoral acetabular impingement syndrome and labral tears are a big problem for cyclists and triathletes. Uh, There's a lot of chatter about it on a lot of the message boards. What exactly is FAI and how does it contribute to labral tears? So basically, FAI uh, stands for femoral acetabular impingement And it basically uh, describes the situation where the ball and cup are just not fit well together. And probably the vast majority of Americans and people in general just have it. So when you think about it, the hip's a very unique joint. I mean, I've looked at tens of thousands of x-rays, and I really don't think I've seen the same hip twice. Um, When you break it down just to simply understand it, it's just a ball and socket joint. When the two fit perfectly together, then everything works well. When they don't fit well together, then the labrum, which is the O-ring of fiber cartilage or extension of the cartilage that lives on the edge of the joint gets impinged against between the ball and the cup. And then the best way to think of it is your hip is just like a machine. And so if you have a horrible shape and you drive the machine hard, then you're going to break down your labrum and break down your joint early in life. If you have, you know, a reasonable shape, but you use it very hard, which is the case for most triathletes and and um, cyclists of longer distance, eventually the machine breaks down to the point where it just doesn't work. And usually the thing that hurts and is the main problem is the labrum. And the problem with the labrum is that it's that O-ring that surrounds the joint and forms a seal with the ball. And what it ends up doing is it gives you volume to the joint and it keeps lubrication in the joint. And it's important for stability and it's important also to protect your cartilage. And once it tears, it's massively, highly innervated with fibers that are called nociceptive fibers, and they're pain fibers. And it has a very high density of these pain 
fibers. And so this is what people feel. They feel the pinching of the labrum once it finally breaks down and tears. But the impingement has been there forever. That's just what you're born with or developed with through adolescence. And that's the mechanism by which you just break down the soft tissue and create pain. You mentioned cycling. Uh, I know we've discussed hockey in the past as being one of those activities, but are there certain activities that are really worse and that predispose people with the anatomy to labral tears? So typically the, the mechanism of injury is flexion and internal rotation or deflection in general. And that's when the ball abuts the edge of the cup in that internally rotated position and, and creates discomfort. So for, for hockey is, a, is notorious for creating a lot of hip problems just because a lot of the sport is done in high flexion and dynamic internal rotation to really drive for that power in skating. Um, anything that does things excessively, so longer distance running and cycling, uh, absolutely. Soccer, a lot of the cross uh, body AB, um, adduction, so when your leg comes across the midline, especially in flexion, uh, that puts you in that position, so that can cause the injuries. And then in women, we typically, it's interesting, you know, I've learned a lot about people uh, and about our development and how we become who we are just because of the spectrum of ages that I see in my clinic. It's really fascinating, you know, I mean, like I never, if I wanted to be a ballerina or a ballet dancer, right, I never would have made it because I can't touch my toes. And one of the reasons is because I have a deeper socket and I'm also kind of tight with my muscles and tendons. But women, especially adolescent girls uh, who are super high flexible or very flexible, right, they, they pass the first several phases of both gymnastics and uh, ballet because it's easy for them to go into the splits or they exhibit a high degree of flexion or rotation. Uh, and it's because they, they typically have shallower cups and looser ligaments, and so they're not constrained at the hip joint as somebody with a deeper cup would be. And so you see the opposite problem. You see the impingement, but also a little bit of shallowness to the cup, and that hyperflexibility eventually breaks down the labrum as well. Hmm. So I think the sports are, are the ones that just, just use the body hard uh, and involve a lot of flexion. If you have the anatomy, is there something you can do to try and prevent getting damage to the labrum? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is is that you have the shape you have. And so you can't really change that. And we're not to the point with uh, hip arthroscopy uh, where we recommend prophylactic intervention. So in other words, surgery because you have the shape, but you don't have symptoms to try and put your hip in a better position moving forward. And I personally don't think we'll ever get to that point simply because as great as surgery it is, it's a very lengthy recovery and rehabilitation. And so I don't think we have the justification to do something proactively like that to try and prevent a problem. I think in general, when you get to know your body and you get to know your hip, the one thing that I think is always hard, and that's why, you know, we had that conversation very early on in your recovery and when we first met, when we talked about running long distances and everything else, you know, I think a lot of it is you have to come to terms with every decade of life for most people. Now, you've absolutely been the exception and a lot of your peers are the exception as well. But this is our one body. We're not going to get another one. And, you know, you decide how you're going to use it and how you're going to spend the cycles that you're given. Um, and so I think the only things you can really do are just, just look at how hard you're using your body, pay attention to your body, listen to it. It's telling you when it hurts and when you have problems. And there's a difference between muscle soreness and joint pain. And I think when you're getting joint pain with some of the higher-end activity, then I think it's reasonable to cur- curtail it to a degree so that it can work for you longer. Does a labral tear automatically mean surgery? 
It, not in my practice, um, but I think that that depends on where you go. There are some people who are rather coercive with regard to their indications for patients, and they will tell people, you know, you've got a labral tear, we've got to fix this or else you're going to get arthritic. I don't really like that uh, treatment um, because if you think about it, right, we don't have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 year results with hip arthroscopy. And so if we're coercing, if we're if we're coercing patients to have surgery to tell them that we're going to fix their arthritis, you need to have that long-term data to prove it. Intuitively, though, when you look at it, the labrum is connected to the cartilage. So when you injure your labrum, you're injuring your cartilage to some degree. Now, that's highly variable depending on the individual patient and really how severe the impingement is, especially the CAM. The CAM is the more destructive of the two sides of the impingement. So you have the pincer, which is where the cup overcovers the ball, and you have the CAM, which is where the ball doesn't fit well into the cup. The CAM is typically more destructive to both the labrum and the capsule, or I'm sorry, the labrum, labrum and the cartilage, whereas the pincer is typically the labrum that gets beat up, but usually the cartilage is more protective. And so in my mind, I think you have an operation when your labrum creates symptoms that are making you unhappy in your life and you can't get past it. You either cannot be as active as you want to be, or you can't work, or you can't sit, uh, or you can't be active with your family uh, or your friends the way you'd want to be. And, and then you understand the surgery and, and the way it needs to be done um, uh, in the postoperative period, and you're willing to make that commitment, and you're in a good place in life to make that commitment, then you should have the surgery. In your mind, not having the surgery, getting by with a torn labrum, even if it's causing you discomfort, but you're still able to get by, that is not necessarily a recipe for developing osteoarthritis of the hip earlier. It certainly could be. But right, the, right. It, it, it certainly could be, but we don't know for sure because we don't know if your labral injury also involves a significant concomitant cartilage injury. And we also don't know if your cartilage has started to delaminate on the edge of the cup. Okay. And so if it started to delaminate, it certainly can get worse. But the things I don't like is I don't like people who take, you know, a bucket of Advil or have steroid injections to finish races or continue to compete. That probably is going to be more destructive. And then you're going to have a situation where there's things I can fix especially because I make a new labrum for patients instead of repairing what they have. So I can fix a lot of problems, but the cartilage problems, you know, we, we have good solutions for, but I don't think they're great forever. Right. And so I think it is one of those things that once you get to the point where your symptoms justify the intervention, I think the cherry on top of that surgery is the fact that for sure it should put you on a better path down the line. Uh, and, and, and certainly, um, uh, delay the arthritic progression to some degree for sure. I think that's intuitive. I feel safe saying that at this point, even though we don't have that objective evidence. But I also feel safe saying it because you're never really going to have that objective data or study that looks at people, you know, 20 years out. Those that have had surgery, those that didn't have surgery, those that had a documented labral tear and cam impingement, and see which one does better. I don't think you'll ever have that study to know that, Jeff. Right. So, um, I've had symptoms, I've been very uncomfortable, I've delayed having surgery for a while because I've been able to live with it, finally it's gotten bad, I decide to have the surgery, how can I ensure that I'm going to have the best possible outcome? 
So I think I think the first thing, and you know, I, I don't say this for self promotion, but I think the big thing is that you have to find somebody who only does hip arthroscopy, or somebody who does it with great regularity. Of all the surgeries I've ever done, this is by far the hardest. It is it is massively meticulous. It requires a very meticulous uh, uh, attention to detail. But then also, it's it's a hard joint arthroscopically because knees and shoulders are superficial. They're pretty easy to get to. Hips are hard, they're deep down, you're working through muscle, you have to have kind of a forceful, delicate touch to be able to, to reshape um, uh, uh, the ball and cuff. And that's an artful resection and sculpture, so that has to be done well. And then I think the labral treatment um, is something that, that's very, uh, it's in a very interesting phase right now with hip arthroscopy. So when you look at it, you know, when I was in my residency, unfortunately, uh, in the early 2000s, we had a lot of patients who had a non-arthritic hip joint and their hip hurt, but we didn't know what it was. The concept of the labral tear being the massive pain generator in the joint in the early 2000s was known only in few places. And so when we first figured out that the hip could hurt when it wasn't arthritic, then we thought the labrum was the problem. And then people started going in and they started figuring out how to get to the hip joint, which isn't easy uh, in and of itself. And then what happened is people then started to debride it, just remove the labrum. Um, and so, you know, eventually you say, well, we can't remove this. This person needs this. And then we started to repair it, applying the principles we had from other joints. And now we've evolved to reconstructing it. And that's where you make a new labrum for people. And that's what I do exclusively. And so I take out the, the cruddy tissue that they have that's all beat up, and I make a new labrum for them out of a brass. And I like that procedure a lot because you get your cake and eat it too. You get a workhorse that's not going to be innervated anywhere near to the same degree as your native labrum. It should not be able to feel or perceive pain anywhere to the same degree. Uh, and it should confer all the biomechanical benefits and principles uh, and reasons why you have a labrum there in the first place. But now you've got something that will just do its work and not complain, which is ideal because patients come in to see me not because they have femoral tabular impingement or they have a labral tear, it's because they have pain and dysfunction. So I think in my mind, the labral reconstruction is the better procedure. And it's a relatively unique skill set because not many people do it with any regularity. So done well, it can be a great result. Done poorly, I think it's an unmitigated disaster. The second thing is once you have had a good surgery that's done well, that's reshaped both sides and, and a proper labrum, then the next part is taking the recovery seriously. I think there's a massive discrepancy in physical therapists as well. Um, you have to have a physical therapist who is um, versed in the, in the rehabilitation of the hip joint to guide you through it, uh, and then you have to commit to it. Um, it, it, this is really in reality. It's a six-month process to get the hard part of PT out, to get your motion back, to get your strength back, to walk normally, to start jogging again. But during this process, especially for those elite athletes or endurance athletes, you've lost a lot of your, 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 your endurance and your stamina. And it takes a long time to build that up. And you just have to do it stepwise. Because if you start taking it on too fast or you try and accelerate the process, even if you feel good, that's when you're going to end up with a tendonitis or a problem and throw off your whole recovery. If I get a labral tear in one hip, how much do I need to worry about that happening on the other side? So, I mean, I think in general, I think a lot of us are built relatively symmetric. And so you may not have the same degree of impingement on the other side, but you probably have a baseline of it. I think it's reasonable to watch it, but then it always goes back to, again, what we talked about earlier. I mean, I think that the justification for innervation or, or 
intervention, I should say, uh, is, is the fact that your, your symptoms justify the need for the surgery. And so even if you have the baseline shape and even if you have a labral tear on the other side, if you're still functioning well, you don't do anything about it. I would say historically, if you look at my practice, I would say probably 15 to 20 percent of my patients have a surgery at some point on the other side. Wow. Well, that's sobering, but definitely not condemning. Dr. White, thanks so much for being on the podcast to discuss this important topic today. I really enjoyed catching up with you, and I wish all the best to all that are out there, uh, and happy to help in any way that I can. And now, it's time for Reels for Wheels, that part of the podcast when I am joined by my friend and colleague and fellow Ironman triathlete, Janetta Iwanaki, so we can share with you our suggestions for movies to watch on your trainer rides. Welcome, Janetta. Hello. So we're going to do something a little different today because it can't all be high-paced interval and steady-state rides. Every once in a while, we have to have an easy recovery ride as well. So today, we are dedicating this episode of Reels for Wheels to movies we think you should watch while on your next recovery ride. So Janetta, we've previously talked about how trainer ride movies should have action sequences and great music and world building. So what kind of things do you look for in a movie to help you through a recovery ride? Yeah, so I actually tend to go for a totally different genre when I'm thinking about recovery. Um, and a big part of that is I find that it's hard not to pedal fast and get your heart rate up when you're watching a great action movie. Um, but on a recovery ride, that actually goes totally against your goals. Um, and so for me, um, I have to kind of completely change tact when I'm looking for those kinds of movies. Um, things that make a good recovery ride movie for me, um, I oftentimes love watching uh, comedy when I'm watching doing recovery rides. It's something that I want to be able to pay a little more attention to the words. Granted, not a lot of attention because I don't want to work very hard. Um, but enough that, you know, something like that really keeps me engaged. Um, I also really have a thing for sports movies when I'm doing recovery rides. Um, and in particular, uh, this is my own very specific genre preference, but I love uh, sports movies where somebody's training hard and they're kind of an underdog. And maybe they're actually not very good at what they're doing, <laughs> but they still work really hard. And maybe they're still not very good, but there's something about that training process um, that I just love watching when I'm doing a recovery. Um, I find that it keeps me engaged. And maybe as somebody who's not exactly you know, a top tier athlete, uh, something about that process kind of speaks to me and sort of says, yeah, it's worthwhile to keep doing what you're doing. So lots of mo training montages set oh, to yeah, music, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's a huge part of it for me. Um, and I, like I said, something with uh, really engaging actors that I'm happy to watch for a while and hang out with. Okay. Well, that's interesting because my take on the Recovery Ride movie is different than that. Uh, mm -hmm. Although I do, I do like those movies. Uh, I'm not big on the sports movies so much because I find them to be a little cliche, but I do respect but that. That's the whole point. I know. I know. Um, I do love a good comedy though, and I will admit to watching many, and I, I expect the ones you're going to recommend are ones that I've probably watched on the trainer. Uh, I find that for my recovery rides, I actually go against what we've talked about previously, and I actually love to watch movies that engage my mind, mm -hmm. uh, movies that I can... Um, you know, have some kind of dramatic tension, movies that have a really uh, story, good storyline, or uh, documentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, I love to learn when watching a movie, and documentaries can open up worlds to me that I previously just never knew existed. Um, and so uh, those two kinds of genres uh, really kind of hold my attention and get me through trainer rides 
that are sort of low intensity based because that way I can engage my mind at the same time. And I think the documentary point is a really great one. And I would add a subgenre of what I love, which are sports documentaries. Yeah. <laughs> those so are like, fantastic. yeah, the ESPN 30 for 30s yeah, are great. Those yeah. Are great. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back and forth and let's give a few uh, suggestions. Uh, we're not going to stick to our usual. Um, uh, format where we each give one. Let's go back and forth and we'll give a few different suggestions uh, for movies we think you can use uh, for recovery rides. Why don't you go first, Jeanette? Yeah, so I'm going to start off with a movie that uh, I'd actually mentioned briefly in one of our previous podcasts, uh, which is Eddie the Eagle. Yes. Uh, speaking of sports movies where somebody's an underdog and maybe not very good at it, this is the perfect movie for that. Yeah. Um, so Eddie the Eagle is the story of a uh, British ski jumper who makes it to the Olympics because he is the only British ski jumper. Um, and despite the fact that he is not very good at it, he's very dedicated to trying to become better. Um, and there's something about that that I just really appreciate. And Tara Edgerton, um, who we mentioned from The Kingsman, um, stars as Eddie the Eagle, although he's practically unrecognizable. Yeah. Um, and it's just lighthearted and fun with great training montages. Yeah. It, it, uh, another, um, story from that same it was the calgary 88 olympics was the jamaican bobsled team also made into a, a movie lighthearted sort of comedy type thing followed very much of the same kind of storyline but eddie the eagle was a far superior film yeah. uh, although i admit to also having a soft spot for cool runnings <laughs> yeah um and i remember uh you know 88 olympics calgary uh, i was in living in canada at the time and uh i remember the eddie the eagle story and and the movie holds pretty true to what actually happened so mm -hmm. i enjoyed that one um, my first choice is a documentary, and it's one of my favorite documentaries of all time. It's uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It, uh, on the surface, sounds like it's going to be completely boring. It's about uh, an, uh, an elderly Japanese man who uh, owns a sushi restaurant, a tiny sushi restaurant in a subway station in Tokyo. It is about so much more than that. It is about life itself. It is about... So many things. There's just nothing I can say about this movie that will really impart how wonderful it is. Please, please, please make time to see it. If not on the trainer ride, then see it just for yourself because you will come away from watching that movie just happy. I watched it for the first time after a uh, long call shift when I was a toxicology fellow, and it was just the most like wonderful thing I had seen, and it's just beautiful and spectacular, so I totally agree. It's worth watching for yeah. just about anybody. Yeah, very life-affirming, and I, I, when I watched it on the trainer, I, I just felt like it gave my legs some, some life. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of documentaries, um, one of my other favorites to watch during recovery rides is the Barkley Marathons documentary. Ah, yes. I think it is fascinating. Um, and speaking of sports documentaries that have kind of a slightly twisted sense of humor to them, and, but still kind of really keep you engaged. And to some extent, that sort of futile process of you know somebody who works really hard and still fails, uh, the Barkley Marathons is fantastic for kind of seeing a bit of that. Um, so this is a documentary about a really unique ultramarathon race um, that uh, is held, and it's really only known amongst prior to this documentary, amongst a really select and somewhat strange group of people, and about the really uh, fascinating characters who are associated with kind of creating this race and running it. Um, and one of the really unique things about it is the fact that this race takes place uh, essentially entirely off the grid. Um, the participants have to navigate themselves. 
the sort of degree of policing of this race is very minimal. So you tell that you've made past your checkpoints by grabbing a page from a book um, and bringing back all your pages from all your books, from all the checkpoints. Um, and the fact that uh, only a handful of people have ever actually even finished this race. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of understand the story behind it and all of the quirky uh, bits and pieces that go into it. And the other nice thing about this for a recovery ride is that it's got interesting scenery, interesting characters, um, and it makes you really glad that you're not doing this race and that you're doing something else instead. Yeah, and that movie has become my go-to answer for when people you know, will ask me, what do you do? I say, Iron Man. They say, oh, you're crazy. And I say, no, 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 Barkley Marathon. That's <laughs> exactly. crazy. Yeah. Um, my second choice is a movie that few people have heard of and even less have seen, and it's Mr. Holmes. It's uh, a film that stars Ian McKellen playing uh, an aged uh, Sherlock Holmes who is in retirement living in the countryside Beset with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, and he is um, visited every day by a young boy who uh, takes an interest in his former life as a detective, and it's a heartbreaking um, story as he is revisited by memories of an unsolved case, and as he uncovers the clues and uncovers the story of that case and what it leads to, it's, it's a sad reminiscence on getting old and, you know, regrets and all of these things that uh, life is full of, but it's also uh, full of optimism as well. And Ian McKellen, as always, is just wonderful to watch. Yeah, his performance is phenomenal in that movie. And uh, it's interesting. I don't know that I thought to watch it on the trainer, but I could see how that would be really great for a recovery ride because it's got that sort of slow, thoughtful pace to it. Yeah, and his performance is great. He just draws you And because there's the mystery underneath it, it really brings it, uh, it makes it, very doable on a trainer and I actually watched it on the trainer it was one of those things I stumbled across and thought oh I'd wanted to see this and it it made the trainer ride very enjoyable yeah I could certainly see that all right Uh, my next choice is one of my all-time favorite not just recovery ride but actually I would say taper movies Um, and this is called run fat boy run this is a movie that I don't know that a lot of folks have seen, um, but I just find it to be endlessly endearing. Um, it uh, stars Simon Pegg, Hank Azaria, and Thandie Newton, and it's the story of a unlikely marathon runner who trains very poorly for a marathon at the last minute to prove his love for uh, a woman who he has uh, sort of lost over time. And the... Training montages are hysterical and funny and have great music. Um, And just seeing that somebody is so dedicated to literally pushing through a wall in the marathon um, is just fantastic. Um, The humor is both highbrow and childish at the same time, which is exactly what you would expect from Simon Pegg. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And uh, the fact that it kind of ends at the London Marathon with somebody who has a really difficult time um, is something that uh, I find really fantastic. And I find images from uh, that movie coming to mind as I'm kind of going through difficult times in a race. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's one I have not seen. But uh, since you've uh, talked to me about it and really raved about it, it's something I'm going to definitely put on my list. Absolutely. It's worth checking out. 
Yeah. Um, my next one is uh, another dramatic uh, sort of epic that few people have seen because it was really a big budget film that ended up being a big budget flop, and it's The Lost City of Z. Um, I'm not sure why it didn't do so well because, quite honestly, I was really enthralled. It's, uh, it's the true life drama of the British explorer Colonel Percival Fawcett, who disappeared in South America while searching for the fabled Lost City of Z, uh, fabled... Um, city of an ancient civilization that was rumored to be built of gold. Um, If you want to talk about persevering through difficult moments, this movie is full of people persevering through the most unbelievably difficult moments and the things that they sacrifice to do this is just amazing mm-hmm. and um, it's it's quite an amazing story a lot of it uh, is uh, supposition towards the end but um, uh, much of it is true and uh, after seeing the movie I, I started researching uh, Fawcett's life and upon realizing how much of the story was based on fact, I mm-hmm. was quite amazed. So it's it's a beautifully shot film uh, with some great storytelling, some great performances, even by an actor that I don't usually like, Robert Pattinson. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, th- I really enjoyed it, and it got me through a, a tough uh, tough recovery ride because I was tired from a, yeah. a hard week of training, and, and this made it quite doable. Yeah. I, I read the book um, and loved it, um, and actually have not seen that movie yet, so I'll have to add that to my list of trainer movies to yeah. watch. Yeah, I hadn't read the book, so I can't, you know, often yeah. the movie lets you down, so yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily know how to But it's just such it. a great story that I can yeah. see how it would translate really well to film. Yeah. Um, so my last suggestion um, is actually another documentary. So you mentioned the 30 for 30 series earlier. Um, and one of my favorites of those to watch on the trainer is uh, Chasing the Badger, um, which is, gets into one of um, cycling's fascinating rivalries and gives you some really interesting stories about what it was like to be cycling in the Peloton um, during that era, as well as sort of some of these ideas of how this rivalry was built, how they perceived each other, um, and how that played out over uh, many races. So it was really interesting. It was a story I'd never heard of before, um, and I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah, I've I've not seen that one. I, I uh, it's you know when you talk about documentary sports documentaries, you, you your mind turns to things like Icarus mm-hmm. and uh, Chasing the Badger is another one that I've heard and mm-hmm. is supposed to be great. And I'm definitely going to put that on my list. Absolutely. My last suggestion is another drama, and it's the. Uh, breakout uh, film for director Sean Baker and actress Brooklyn Prince, and it's The Florida Project. It is simply an astonishing film. Um, uh, It is set in a motel in Orlando. It follows uh, the story of uh, a young girl and how she gets through the summer with her um, single mom. And uh, it is... just I, I'm at a lack of words to really describe how wonderful this film is. They're aided by the motel manager, played by Willem Dafoe. Um, the stories uh, that this young girl goes through, and I mean, it's as real to life. I mean, Janetta and I both work in an urban inner city emergency department, and we can both attest to the fact that this uh, clearly tells the lives of many of the patients that we take care of, and. Um, we see only little snapshots. Mm-hmm. This movie gives a lot of the background. And if you haven't seen it, I can't urge you strongly enough to see it. It's another one that I would say, watch on the trainer or off. It's totally worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I would totally agree with that. And again, I think um, this is another great example of one that I don't know that I would have thought to watch on the trainer, but now I really 
do want to watch it on the trainer after talking about it. Um, it's a fantastic film and really draws you into the rest of that context of the story that we see that little snapshot of in, in our world. So um, yeah, and it makes you remember, you know, childlike exuberance, yeah, like how yeah. you know you don't need stuff. Yeah, you can you can be happy as a child with yeah. nothing. And gives you and, a sense of just how resilient and um, yeah. capable kids are. Yeah. Well, this uh, brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Reels for Wheels. I hope you've enjoyed this take on uh, recovery rides and our suggestions for movies. And again, even if you're not going to watch them on the trainer, these are all films that we both believe are very worthwhile adding to your list of 2C. So, Janetta, thanks again for being uh, with me. Happy recovery, everybody. And that is all for this episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did enjoy what you heard, please consider leaving me a rating or a review wherever you download this to listen. They really do help. If you didn't, or if you have other comments or a question for me to consider answering on the show, send all of that feedback to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. References for the science and the answer to my listener question, as well as links to everything else that I discussed on the show, can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. The music at the beginning and end of the show is Radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many more like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you will visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener, health, and triathlon-related question for me to answer, an interview with Matt Legrand, coach, podcaster, and Ironman triathlete on overcoming barriers for entry into the sport. Plus, I'll have a brand new segment that I'm excited to share with you all. Until then, I'm Jeff Sankoff. Train hard, train healthy.